Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Department of Danger by Jack Lancer. Volume 3, Chapter 7, Fox and Hounds. What? My picture's all over every newspaper? Chris gulped. How did that happen? I guess that Lustig had secret cameras rigged to photograph intruders, Geronimo explained. I take it you had to pick the lock to get in. Anyhow, you must have tripped one of the cameras because it snapped your picture. The police released it to the press. What rotten luck! Somebody there at the Thackeray Arms is bound to recognize you. That's why I decided to risk calling. Better clear out fast, White Eyes, and don't spare the horses. Chris needed no urging. I'm on my way, Redskin. He hung up and leapt out of bed. As he flung on his clothes, Chris realized, I sure can't go strolling out there with my suitcase. I'd leave it behind. Too bad. One or two tricky little gadgets of Pomeroy's were in the suitcase. But nothing important. He froze suddenly at the sound of footsteps along the corridor. They stopped just outside his door. Chris's pulse skidded. Was the law already about to close in? There was a faint noise which Chris could not make out. Then the steps went down the hall. Chris let out his breath in a sigh of relief. He wasn't safe yet, though. Not with his friendly neighborhood booby trapper still in business. The guy could have planted one right outside my room, Chris told himself tensely. He tiptoed to the door in his stocking feet. The steps halted again, and there was a clump. Then more steps going away. Puzzled, Chris eased the door open and peered out. A man in a white coat was wheeling a cart down the corridor. He stopped two rooms away to deposit a pair of freshly shined shoes. It was the hotel bootblack, who polished the guest's shoes during the night. As the man set the pair down, he noticed Chris. Morning, sir. Good morning. Grinning foolishly, Chris stooped to pick up his own gleaming loafers. Then the bootblack did a double take and took a sudden second glance, this time with a startled expression. Chris withdrew hastily into his room and shut the door, heart thumping. Did that guy recognize me? He could hear the man's footsteps going down the corridors faster now, then a slam, the service door at the end of the hall. Maybe he's rushing downstairs to tell the manager he spotted the guy pictured on the front page of the newspapers. In an icy sweat, he jammed his feet into the loafers and pulled on his blazer. Then he slipped out into the hall. The shoe cart, still half full, was standing near the door to the service stairs. Which way? Well, the stairs would be safer, he decided. I could probably duck out the back way without going past the desk. On the other hand, I might run smack into the boots. Chris decided to use the lift and risk a bold exit. He turned left and strode to the front hall. The elevator indicator pointed to the ground floor. 
He took a deep breath and pressed the button. Moments went by with no response. The car was still on the first floor. What's going on down there? Chris wondered uneasily. He put his finger to the call button again, then stopped short as the indicator needle began to swing upward. Could the police have been summoned that fast? It didn't seem likely. But maybe the chief porter or someone else recognized my face before the boots did. Chris's stomach churned at the thought. Acting on a blind impulse, he dashed down the hall toward the bend in the corridor away from his own room. He halted just around the corner as the lift stopped. He heard the door opening and people coming out, their footsteps headed away in the direction of 549. Chris peeked cautiously. He saw the manager and the uniformed policeman. He waited until they were out of sight and then darted into the elevator and pressed the first floor button. The door slid shut and the car descended. Chris's pulse was a bit calmer by the time the lift reached the ground floor. As the door opened, he whipped a handkerchief to his nose. Several people were moving around the lobby. The reception clerk was registering a guest, and at the porter's desk, a bellhop and a girl employee were sorting out the mail. Chris walked boldly out of the lobby and passed the doorman. The handkerchief still clutched to his face. Morning, he mumbled huskily in response to the doorman's greeting. His pace increased as he strode along the street. Traffic was already brisk on Piccadilly, and a number of people were on their way to work in shops and offices. Chris headed for Piccadilly Circus, hurried down the steps into the underground station, and bought a ticket for Hammersmith, a distant suburban stop. In two minutes, he was on a tube train, rumbling west under the streets of London. But instead of riding all the way to Hammersmith, he got off at the first stop, Green Park. From the platform, he made his way through the milling throng of commuters and along a sloping white-tiled passageway toward the upper level. At a sign-marked men's washroom, he turned off. Inside the laboratory was a separate cubicle containing several sinks, soap, and towels. Sixpence, please, said the attendant, scarcely looking up from the racing news. Chris gave him a coin and was admitted to the cubicle. He bent over his sink and hastily went to work as the attendant returned his paper. From an inside pocket, Chris pulled out a compact skies kit. His hair, applied with a brush, changed him rapidly from blonde to brunette. Small foam rubber pads stuffed inside his cheeks strikingly altered the contour of his face. Dark glasses completed the change. Chris glanced out the windows of the cubicle to make sure the attendant's nose was still buried in the racing news, then emerged and strode quickly out of the laboratory. On the street again, Chris relaxed for the first time since Geronimo's call. At least I'll be safe for a while, he thought to himself. But the thought was cold comfort as he mulled over the full extent of his plight. As he walked along, Chris imagined what Q would say. That is, if he ever got a chance to see the old boy again in the next ten years. Scotland Yard will be watching for me at every airport, every harbor, every way out of the country. As a cinch, the American Embassy won't be able to do me much good, except provide legal counsel. There was always the odd chance, of course, that he might be able to lay hands on a fake passport, with Geronimo's help, and return to New York in disguise. 
but trying to buy a passport in the right quarters with a possible murder rap hanging over his head might be very chancy indeed. Meanwhile, his double mission in London was almost certainly washed up. Maybe I goofed last night by not staying put at Lustig's place and facing the... Chris broke off as a warning signal buzzed in his brain. Footsteps behind him. Faint but steady. Chris stopped at the next pedestrian crossing and turned to face traffic. From the corner of his eye, he noted the person who had been following him. A little man in a bowler hat and striped pants, umbrella over one arm, head bent, reading a folded newspaper. Typical London type. Where have I seen him before? Chris wondered, starting across the street. Suddenly he knew. He had seen the man on the underground platform back at Piccadilly Circus. Chris paused momentarily on the corner as if getting his bearings. Bowler Hat was following him across the street. No doubt about it, if the man had been on the platform at Piccadilly Circus, he must definitely have hung around waiting at Green Park Station until Chris emerged from the washroom, which in turn meant he had probably tailed Chris all the way from the hotel. The morning relief for the hotel stakeout. Chris decided. The agent grinned wickedly as his pulse stirred with excitement. A little action coming up, maybe? Better than glooming, anyhow. Chris started off briskly. Again, he heard the faint patter behind him. In the next block, Chris came to a telephone call box. He went inside, consulted the directory, and rang Geronimo's hotel. Through the glass, he could see Bowler Hat pausing to look at some gents' shirtings in a shop window. Presently, Geronimo came on the line. This is your old buddy, the white pony soldier, Chris told him in Apache. What's up, fearless leader? Got out of the Thackeray Arms okay, but now I'm being tailed. How about setting up an ambush at the pass? The two boys laid their plans rapidly. Then Chris hung up and emerged from the call box, whistling softly. Geronimo's hotel was located just a few blocks ahead near Hyde Park. Chris walked toward it steadily. Presently, he sighted his Indian pal in the distance coming toward him. The two boys passed with no sign of recognition. Chris kept going until he counted to fifty, then suddenly whirled around. Bowler Hat was still on his tail. By now, Geronimo had passed him too. Chris strode quickly toward the little man, whose face contorted in alarm. He turned to flee, only to find Geronimo waiting. Bowler Hat sensed his danger instantly. He raised his umbrella and pointed it straight at Geronimo. Chris heard a faint report like a cork popping as a puff of smoke issued from the tip. Chapter 8 A Count of Nine As the umbrella weapon fired, Geronimo was already doing an ikey whirl. A puff of smoke went past his shoulder, and an instant later the Indian came at the man low and hard, arms akimbo. They collided with a grunt, and Bowler Hat crashed backwards, with the Apache on top of him. Chris reached them in a dozen steps and yanked the umbrella from Bowler Hat. Then he and Geronimo helped the man to his feet. Play it peaceful, friend, Chris warned. This brawley's pointed right at you. 
Several passers-by had turned to glance at the trio, but walked on without stopping, apparently assuming there had been an accidental sidewalk collision. Let's get moving, Chris said, toward the park. Take his arm, Jerry. The Apache assented with a grin. Geronimo and Bowler Hat went first. Chris followed a pace or so behind, swinging the umbrella dapperly, so that now and then its tip brushed the back of the little man's coat. Shall we start talking? Chris said. Don't bother turning your head, please. Talk about what? Bowler Hat snarled. Who sent you? Why are you trailing me? There was silence as they walked along. Come on, Chris urged. Start beating the gums together. That's a good chap. Bit of a bore, I know, but let's not make it any more painful than necessary. Bowler Hat sneered. You two yabos don't frighten me. You wouldn't dare try anything on a public street. I hardly think you'd turn me over to the coppers, now would you? Quite right, Chris said pleasantly. But then I hardly think you'll keep up this stubborn attitude very long either. He spoke rapidly to Geronimo and Apache. What's that thing, pig Latin? asked Bowler Hat. No, trouble for you, old boy. They came to Hyde Park Quarter and crossed over. Entering the park, Geronimo steered the little man toward the Serpentine, a long, placid pond fringed with trees. At this early hour, the park was almost empty, and the greenery glistened with dew in the morning sunshine. Chris tagged along behind the pair as they headed down along the brink of the pond. Presently, the trees and shrubs hid them from the view of the other park strollers. Chris's manner now became more businesslike. Fun's over, old chap. Talk fast and clearly, and don't try our patience any further. You know better than I do what will happen if this brawly goes off. You can't get away with this, Muller Hat gritted. You'll never know, Chris bluffed their prisoner. After your body plops into the serpentine, who'll be wiser? Muller Hat still held out. I'll count to nine, Chris warned. You'll have that long to change your mind. On ten? Poof. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Wait! The word came out in a stifled half-scream. I'll talk. Just, just take it easy. Geronimo eased his grip. What's your name? Chris asked. Pavetti. Alf Pavetti. Who sent you? Drakulf. Well, well. Chris's eyebrows rose. What were your orders? Shadow you anywhere you went. Don't lose you. Report your movements. You were staked out at the hotel? That's right. Come on at six. Followed you to Piccadilly Circus. Then by underground to Green Park. That disguise bit didn't fool me. I resent the slur on my professional ability. Still, it all works out neatly in the end. So it happens that I'm eager to meet Mr. Drakoff. Tell us about him. I can't. Never laid eyes on him. Just an agent for the network. Paid by the job. It's the truth. So help me. Strike me dead if it's not. I'll just get me orders by phone and money in an envelope through the mail slot on the day after. All right, we believe you. 
He's off, Jerry. Let's have a peek at his wallet. Geronimo frisked his prisoner with one hand. He found a switchblade knife, which he dropped into the pond and passed a wallet to Chris. It contained a driver's license and other identification made out to Alfred E. Pavani. His street address was in Southwark, a dingy residential area across the Thames. Chris copied the information, which included a telephone number, and then handed back the wallet. Okay, we'll let you go, chum. One condition, though. What's that? You arrange a meeting between me and Drakoff as soon as possible. My name is Christopher Cool, in case you didn't know. Well, I did. I don't think I can fix you up. Bowler Hat frowned as he rubbed his wrist. There's a chap in a pub I can contact. Can we reach you at that number in your wallet? Chris asked. Roy, make it three o'clock. Fair enough. And don't let us down. I've snapped your picture with my lapel camera, and a copy will go to Scotland Yard with a full account if there's any hanky-panky. Don't worry. I'll deal fair and square. Bowler Hat sniffed and looked insulted. What about my umbrella, then? Sorry, it's entirely too dangerous to be carried about on a public street, especially within range of us. Just toddle along, old boy. The two young CIA agents watched him walk off through the park. He looks naked without that thing hanging from his arm, Geronimo remarked. So let him buy a raincoat, Chris said. He triggered off the five remaining cartridges before dropping the umbrella into the serpentine. The boys went to a restaurant for breakfast and then spent the rest of the morning and early afternoon sightseeing. Three o'clock, Chris telephoned Pavetti's number, a voice which he recognized as a little man's answered. Yeah. Cool calling. What's the drill? British Museum, Rosetta Stone, Fob Shop. Chris heard a receiver click down. He hung up and reported the result to Geronimo. The Apache grunted. Very neat for Drakoff. He has a complete description of you, but you don't even know what to look for. His game all the way. Chris gave a wry shrug. What did you expect? You have a better suggestion, maybe? Yes. Quit this whole teen CIA racket and go home to the reservation. Failing that, we have two hours to kill. Let's go back to your hotel. My dogs are barking. At the hotel, the boys stretched out for a short nap. Chris on the bed, Geronimo in a chair with his feet up on the radiator. At four o'clock, the Apache ordered tea sent up to the room. And finally, they started out by taxi for the British Museum. En route, Geronimo cast several weary glances out the back window. Not sure, but I think a car is following us. To play it safe, it was agreed that when they reached the British Museum, Geronimo would wait outside and signal an alarm over his wristwatch communicator in case of trouble. The taxi drove into the faded elegance of the Bloomsbury district and dropped them outside the imposing gray building. Chris paid off the cabbie, and they walked in through the gateway past the small, crowded car park to the portico front entrance. So long, Chunde, Geronimo muttered. He planted himself on one of the stone benches of the portico. Chris went on inside to the marble foyer. A guard directed him left, past the publications counter, and through the Assyrian transept into the Egyptian sculpture gallery. 
The transept was flanked by brooding stone lions with wings and human heads. Chris strolled on into the gallery, a long narrow room with busts of pharaohs and other Egyptian pieces. A few visitors were wandering around. In the center of the room, on a lit, glass-topped pedestal, was the famous Rosetta Stone, a tablet bearing three forms of writing which had first enabled scholars to decode Egyptian hieroglyphics. Chris studied it casually. Well, at least I could read two of them, he thought, scanning the Greek and demonic Egyptian. Chris looked at his watch. Exactly five o'clock. I wonder how long I'll have to wait. He glanced around at the visitors, an elderly gentleman leaning on a cane, a tall RAF officer with a bushy zoom duster mustache, a nanny with two small children, and a pair of giggly schoolgirls. None of them looked too promising. Chris stiffened alertly as his wristwatch suddenly started to buzz. Jerry's alarm signal. But he couldn't answer it here without attracting attention. Chris turned and headed back into the Assyrian transept, which seemed deserted at the moment. Just then, two men came through the doorway from the foyer. They wore dark suits and had a tough, quiet look about them. They walked straight toward him. Chris's heart thudded and his hand streaked to the inside pocket of his blazer, where the anesthetic pen was cozily nestled. Don't try anything foolish, the tallest of the two men snapped. His hand flipped over a wallet to display his identification. Scotland Yard Flying Squad. Are you Christopher Cool? Chris nodded, trying to keep his voice steady. I am. I should like you to come along with us, please, for questioning in connection with a burglary in Hatton Garden and an assault on a man named Eli Lustig. Chapter 9 Night Shift The detectives moved into place on each side of Chris. Now then, we suggest you come along quietly. Who's arguing? Chris murmured. It all seemed so reasonable and well-mannered that he would have felt like a bore to object. As they came outside, Chris glanced around for Geronimo. The Apache was nowhere in sight. A small black car was parked in the street. Chris was shepherded into the back seat, and one of the two plainclothesmen climbed in with him. The other took the wheel and radioed Central Division before starting off. Where to now? Scotland Yard? Wormwood Scrubs? Tottenham Court Road Station first, since we picked you up in their territory. At the station, Chris was led in and shown to the desk sergeant, then out of the car again and a drive eastward into Theobald's Road. They pulled up before the Holborn Police Station, a low, modern-looking building. The crime was committed in this division, so you'll be questioned here. Chris was told. Inside, one of the yard men spoke to a desk sergeant. This is the lad who was wanted for that job in Hatton Garden last night. We picked him up at the British Museum. The sergeant eyed Chris keenly and reported over the phone. Okay, take him upstairs. The super will see him. The two flying squad men escorted Chris to a second floor room. There he waited in silence until two other men came in. One burly with iron-gray hair was introduced as Detective Chief Superintendent Hart. His companion was a younger, hard-faced detective. Sit down, said the superintendent, 
and then held out his hand toward Chris. Pass ball. Chris handed it over. Hart flipped the pages inside of the passport photo. Remove the glasses, please. Chris did so. Will that hair tie come off? I hope so, said Chris. Superintendent Hart turned to his assistant. So I came to the washroom. Chris was taken to a laboratory where the detective pointed to the wash basin, soap, and paper towels. Go to it. As he bent over the basin, soaping his hair, Chris spat out the foam rubber pads inside his cheeks. That lot of good his disguise had done him. Back in the interrogation room, Superintendent Hart surveyed the results approvingly. Ah, oh, that's better. So you're Christopher Cool. That's right. Where were you last night shortly after nine o'clock? At 98 Hatton Garden. Well, so you admit that, do you? Chris permitted himself a wry grin. Wouldn't do me much good to deny it, I imagine. Very well indeed, seeing that your picture was snapped when you broke in, Hart said sharply. What was your business there? Friend in America asked me to call on Mr. Lustig while I was in London. What friend? Chris pretended to hesitate. I prefer to keep his name out of it, if you don't mind. He had nothing to do with what happened. Suppose you tell us what happened. I got there soon after nine, rang the bell, and heard several screams inside. There was no one else in sight on the block, so I broke in. I was afraid Mr. Lustig was being murdered. A remarkably expert job of breaking and entering, Hart remarked with heavy sarcasm. I've studied locksmithing, Chris said. Right, go on. Well, the burglar alarm startled me, but I rushed upstairs anyway, thinking Lustig needed help. There he was, all clawed up and not moving. I didn't even know if he was still alive. And then I heard a police whistle and people bursting in, and, well, I guess I got the wind up a bit. I knew I was on the spot, so I ducked out. Hart's assistant and the two Scotland Yard men joined in the grilling. Chris fielded their questions as well as he could. The superintendent scowled and rubbed a large hand over his thinning hair. You expect us to believe this story, son? Chris shrugged. Hart rose to his feet with a ponderous sigh. That case is no more to be said. Your embassy has already been notified. No doubt you'll be hearing from them in due course. To his assistant, Hart added, Book him. The detective took Chris to a charge room where a policeman was seated in a typewriter. Christopher Cool, I hereby charge you with burglary and grievous bodily harm against the person of one Eli Lustig, diamond merchant on his premises at 98 Hatton Garden, the detective intoned. And I warn you that anything you say may be taken down and used as evidence against you. Do you wish to make a statement? Chris shook his head. Yes and no. No. The policeman at the desk chiped up a form which both the detective and Chris had to sign. What happens now? Chris asked. You'll be detained here tonight, and tomorrow morning you'll be arraigned at Clerkenwell Magistrates Court. Probably the American Embassy will have legal counsel on hand for your defense. If not, the court will appoint one. Chris was fingerprinted and his pockets emptied. Then he was locked in a neat yellow-tiled cell with a stout oak door and one high barred window. 
The door was opened soon afterwards by the turnkey who brought him dinner. Chris ate the steak and kidney pie with small appetite. He had hit rock bottom. The fate feared by all secret agents. Under arrest in a foreign country with no hope that his own service could or would stir a finger to aid him. After all, he had been fairly warned of the risks when Teen first recruited him. Boy, this mission has been a disaster from start to finish, Chris reflected. Could they actually convict him? No diamonds could be traced to his possession. Of course, the police could claim that he must have worked with a Confederate. Probably it was just as well that Jerry had cut out when the police arrived. Chris lay back in his bunk and pictured himself in the dock with a bewigged judge and lawyers debating his fate. And how do you find the defendant? The judge was putting on a black skull cap. Gradually, Chris dozed off. A light blinked down in his cell, and Chris surged up out of his deep sleep. He blinked at two figures near his bunk, a plainclothes detective and a uniformed constable. On your feet, please, said the detective. What's this all about? We're taking you to the Royal Free Hospital in Gray's Inn Road to be x-rayed. X-rayed? You may have swallowed some of the diamonds to keep them from being found on you. Now, come along. Chris was taken to the station garage and put into a police car with two escorts. It was after midnight. The luminous hands on Chris's watch dial pointed to 127. The car turned right along Theobald's road. You're not taking me to any hospital, Chris said. Gray's Inn Road is the other way. His escort said nothing. Chris finally got his bearings as the car passed Marble Arch. They were heading west into Bayswater Road. At last, the police car pulled over outside a small office building in a seedy neighborhood. Chris was taken inside, up in a lift, then into an unmarked suite of offices. A tall, lean man in shirt sleeves with a sardonic face and a vaguely military air sat at a battered desk. Nearby sat Geronimo. Honde chunde, the Apache murmured. Hi, pal. His copper-skinned face was as expressionless as ever. Here's cool, sir, said the detective. The man at the desk nodded a curt thank you. As the door closed, he gestured Chris to a chair. Up a pew. My name is Foliot. You're Christopher Cool, otherwise known as Kingston One. I beg your pardon? Foliot chuckled. No need to beat around the bush. We know you're an American agent. Is that so? Oh, quite. After the hotel chaps identified you from the newspaper photo, Scotland Yard cabled the FBI for information on you. The FBI routed the query to CIA, which passed it on to your particular unit. They decided to throw their cards on the table and seek our cooperation. Hulls across the sea and all that. Sounds like a spy story plot, Chris remarked. Yes, doesn't it? The CIA people here in London briefed us on your whole mission. I... He broke off as one of the three telephones on his desk rang. Ah, your chief was here to call us at 0200 hours. Foliot lifted the left phone. Oh, yes, key is it? He talked for a while and then looked at Chris. Your chief wants to speak to you. Chris took the phone gingerly. It was Q's voice all right. 
The teen chief proceeded to identify himself with the current top-secret password for hazardous voice transmissions. Got yourself into a bit of a jam, did you, Kingston One? No doubt about it, that was Q. I ran into complications. Yes, you can tell me all about it when you get back. Meanwhile, go ahead and work with the Limeys. Not a bad lot. Quite good at this sort of thing, really. In spite of a few security leaks as big as the Lincoln Tunnel. Chris glanced at Foliat, aware that the call was probably being taped. Hugh must know it too and was probably trying to slip in a few quick rabbit punches to cover his own red face over the fowler. Well, that's all, Hugh ended. Unless you have any questions? No, sir. Understood. Chris hung up and explained to Geronimo, then he turned back to Foliat. I take it the CIA gave you the name of Jerry's hotel? That's right. The flying squad got there as you were aboard in a taxi and trailed you to the museum. One of our men who accompanied them took your partner in charge separately. Chris felt a bit better. At least his disguise hadn't been so bad. They had spotted him merely from the fact that he was with Jerry. If you knew about our mission, he asked Foliot, why all the rigmarole about charging me at the Holborn police station? Well, we haven't exactly blared the news all through the force, you know, Foliot replied. I have to keep up a bit of cover. Actually, word will be given out to the papers that you escaped from custody after being taken to the hospital. Chris nodded. Okay, let's get down to business. What can you tell us about Eli Lustig? For one thing, we believe him to be a top echelon director of Toad's British branch. Also, we know who Lustig's other visitor was. Oh? How so? Fingerprints. The yard men picked up a clear set of dabs belonging to a known Drakov agent. Who is he? Geronimo asked. When I say known, I mean he's known to belong to the Drakov network, Fully had explained. Actually, we have nothing else on him. His prints were first obtained off some microfilm that had been passed through network hands. But no burglar alarm had been tripped before I got there? Chris said thoughtfully. Right. So Lustig must have let him in. For some reason, maybe a quarrel. The visit ended with an attack on Lustig. Then the Drakoff man fled when you two set off the alarm. There may have been two Drakoff men, by the way. One cracking the safe while the other assaulted Lustig. Chris frowned. What about those gashes on Lustig? They were like claw marks, almost as if he was attacked by a wild animal. Foliot drew a deep breath and leaned back in his chair, toying with a pencil. It's an interesting question. I must now tell you something very odd, which so far has been kept from the British public. A man, Chinese, was found recently in a wooded area of Kent, not far from London. He'd been horribly gashed and chewed on. The work of some savage animal had appeared. He was out of his mind with terror, completely insane. He's been in the hospital since, hovering near death. We haven't been able to get anything out of him. And our best zoologists can't tell from the marks what sort of animal attacked him. Chris and Geronimo exchanged startled glances. What about the Chinese? Geronimo asked. No clues to his identity. Foliat nodded. Yes, through various intelligence sources we finally discovered who he is. Wang Su, a brilliant biochemist. Is rumored to have slipped out of China via Hong Kong, 
with a formula for some new secret Terran weapon of biological warfare. Chris gave a low whistle. What's he doing over here? Another good question. The danger immediately arises that the weapon may be about to be turned loose on England. So because of the potential threat to the whole population, the mystery was turned over to our department. You're in Secret Service, I assume? MI5? Folia grinned coldly. No, laddie. We're a rather special unit set up to cope with extraordinary threats to national security. Now that you two are taking the Queen's shilling, you'll be members of our little group. We are called the Department of Danger.